law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 119 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023. I'm your host, Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Today, we have some pretty significant updates in the Fulton County DA investigation, along with new information about the distribution of classified material by Jack Teixeira. Yep, and we'll also cover a lawsuit filed by the Department of Justice against officials in Tennessee for their sweeping ban on medical care for transgender minors. But first, I wanted to thank all of our patrons. Uh, We had a really great event this past Sunday, uh, Pete. I'm so glad that you made it, and I'm so glad that um, so, so many of our patrons could come out. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. I mean, what a group of just wonderful, charming, beautiful, fun people to uh, hang out with. It was amazing to meet all of you. And again, I can't thank everyone, whether you're at the reception or not, but for all the patrons out there, thank you so much for your support and everything that you do to make this podcast possible for everybody out there who's listening to it. Yeah, and you can sign up for as little as a buck an episode, and you can do that at patreon.com slash aisle45pod, which is A-I-S-L-E-4-5-P-O-D. And whatever name you put down, we will read on the air. For example, here's our list of new patrons this week. Richard Armatrout, Nevin Absher, Not Ketchup Banksy, <laughs> Tyler King, Eric Alexander, Russell, Jess Johns, Kathy Meyer, Veronica Krautheim, and Clea. Thank you so much again. You guys make this show possible. Pete, uh, let's get started down in Georgia. We had some pretty major announcements come down right after <laughs> we recorded our episode last week that didn't quite make it into the episode. Uh, So let's talk about that letter that uh, Fonnie Willis, Fulton County District Attorney, wrote to local law enforcement. Yeah, absolutely. And then we're starting to get some real granular details about when things might actually happen. So she sent a letter to law enforcement essentially saying, hey, I am likely to announce charging decisions between July 11th and September the 1st. Now, that's the fourth term of the court. And she, within the letter, directly quoting from it, said, please accept this correspondence as notice to allow you sufficient time to prepare. The letter went to the sheriff's office, to the chief of police, and to the county emergency management agency. So anybody who might respond to potential unrest or potential upheaval were all noticed with that. And she continues in in the letter, quote, We have seen in recent years that some may go outside of public expressions of opinion that are protected by the First Amendment to engage in acts of violence that will endanger the safety of those we are sworn to protect. And continuing, open source intelligence has indicated the announcement of decisions in this case may provoke a significant public reaction. Now, if you step back away from that letter, I mean, to me, there's... (laughs) 
in my mind, it is highly unlikely that if Rudy Giuliani gets indicted in Georgia, that anybody is going to the, take to the streets and protest. Likewise, if Jenna Alice or, you know, Christina Bob or, you know, one of the sort of second or third tier, you know, characters in this whole saga is, is brought uh, up on charges, I don't see this sort of concern being there. I do think in my mind, and I think a lot of folks that I've, I've seen uh, providing commentary, it sure sounds like Allison, like she's indicting Trump. If you're yeah. if you're warning that much, that specifically uh, about potential unrest, yeah, and she quote she makes a reference to January sixth and the violence on January sixth, and said, so we we know recent events have shown us that some people take it a little too far, you know, and then engage in violent acts. She's she's doesn't name January sixth, but that's what she's talking about. And then you know, like folks, like you said, some of these commentators, Norm Eisen is like, you know, I don't think. Uh, the the person who would cause a significant public reaction would be an indictment of Trump, and so everyone's kind of reading the tea leaves, uh, the tea leaves there. Now, you know that there was a big lawsuit filed against Fonnie Willis from the Trump campaign. That did they're the Trump lawyers. They didn't want the special purpose grand jury information. They wanted to quash that report. They wanted to quash any potential indictments that would come out of that report, even though it hasn't been, you know, uh, given over to a regular grand jury yet. The special purpose grand jury is just for investigating. Uh, And the briefings in that particular lawsuit were due uh, Monday, May 1st. But something happened in the meantime. Kathy Latham, has filed a motion to join that lawsuit, that weird 51-page, you know, screed of nonsense lawsuit. And so the judge, Judge McBurney, has now given them until May 15th to file their briefings in that lawsuit. But the thing here is Pete Latham, Kathy Latham, is one of those 10 electors represented by the lawyer named Dubrow. And as we know... Uh, Fonnie Willis filed a motion to have DeBrow removed from the case because she was having conflicts of interest between and among her 10, the 10 fraudulent electors she was representing, right? Remember, there was a, a, a cup, I guess a few of the electors had testified as recently as this, you know, just this past month to her uh, or to to the regular grand jury or to questioning, you know, in the office itself and not in front of a grand jury, that there was somebody in that group that was committing crimes that the others didn't commit. And we also found out that the lawyer, uh, Dubrow, didn't present an immunity offer to to these folks uh, as, as the court ordered. Uh, so she filed that. And those briefs is that brief, DeBro's brief is still due May 5th. That's this week, right? That's this Friday. So we are going to get some docket stuff happening uh, a little bit later in the week in this case. But the lawsuit to, you know, quash all indictments and the special purpose grand jury's report, all of that has now been postponed till the 15th because Kathy Latham wants to join that group, that to uh, like join on to that lawsuit. Yeah. And look, I think this is what's going on here. I mean, you had this one kind of, you know, in my opinion, crooked, non-ethical attorney, Dubrow, who's representing these 10 different fake electors or electors, you know, who potentially lined up to be an alternate slate. Allegedly, Dubrow, the attorney, did not tell all of them 
that Fonnie Willis had offered, you know, potentially immunity to come in and testify. And so there's a real issue for Debro, the attorney, because she, he, she, she, I think, um, didn't do her, well, Debro, he or she, didn't do their ethical duty in terms of representing their clients. Fonnie Willis found out about that. And then you saw Willis move to say, hey, look, Debro should be removed from any of these cases. Clearly has, you know, apparently breached some ethical standards. And furthermore, it stands to reason that Willis would be reaching out to some of these uh, electors who didn't know that they had the option to potentially have immunity and start engaging in those talks saying, hey, look, you know, you didn't hear about it then. You're hearing about it now. Do you want to come in and essentially, you know, cut a deal and spill the beans on the rest? In my opinion, what Kathy Latham is doing in this filing to join the Trump lawsuit (laughs) is the- She just basically raised her hand and said, it's me. Yeah, yeah, no. It's like, oh, fuck, I didn't get my immunity agreement in on time. So therefore, I want to like join and get it all thrown out. So in in my mind, you know, this is not something where- I think she's the one that did the crime that the others hadn't done. That's where, that's what my- personal opinion here is because Kathy Latham was one of the people that was involved in breaching the Coffee County voting machine. Uh, right. And getting getting those data and and basically stealing that for the for the Trump campaign. They were going to use it to overturn the Ossoff win and perhaps in the future, uh kind of like how they did in Antrim County to try to overturn uh, the results there in Michigan. I think she's basically this let this joining the lawsuit is like, yep, I'm the one they're talking about that did the crime that no one else participated in. I'm not getting an immunity deal. So I'm going to join on to Trump's lawsuit. I, I mean, she just sort of basically, I mean, she, you know, she didn't explicitly confess, but this is what it feels like to me. No, I agree. And I mean, that's something for, you know, all our listeners out there. You will, I am nearly certain, remember Coffee County. You will hear that again. I think that is absolutely going to be a very critical p- component of whatever Fonnie Willis eventually brings charge-wise. The whole series of events about going down there and, uh, you know, getting getting the access to the machines, that is going to be a, a key part. So, you know, you, you heard it here first and then keep that in mind when we do get to, you know, whenever that sweet spot of a announcement of charges between, you know, July 11th and September 1st, which is, you know, what, that's a month and a half. I think you're going to hear a lot more about Coffee County. And Allison, one more thing when I'm thinking about like people who might provide or, or who might show up to engage in non-legal protest, I'm reminded of the fact it came out um, within the past month or two that when Mike Flynn was brought in to testify that they had essentially before he arrived brought dogs through the courthouse and the grand jury area to sweep for potential explosives. And there are potentially some folks, you know, we chuckle about Jen, Alice, or Rudy, and nobody could give a shit about, you know, whether or not they're indicted. I do think somebody like Mike Flynn, I'm not saying he is or isn't going to be indicted. I mean, he's certainly, you know, in this cast of characters. But there are some folks other than Trump who run in circles that their indictment might provoke a a violent or non-legal response. So I just want to, you know, throw that thought out there again. I think I agree completely. She is writing that in all likelihood, specifically referencing Trump. But I just wanted to flag there, you know, there's a couple other folks in this orbit who were they indicted might result in supporters showing up and doing things outside the outside the law. Yeah, sure. That whole you know, that whole Flynn group, the Roger Stones of the world. And right. Yeah, they, they you know, they hang with they, they hang out with Proud Boys and three percenters um, and, and domestic terror groups. So, 
Yeah, you're right. You're right about that. I forgot about the bomb sniffing dogs before Flynn, before Flynn got there. So that's a really, really good point. Um, it, she could be referencing. I, I'm with you. Like, I think it's a reference to Trump, but she could be referencing somebody like Flynn as well. We'll see. We'll yeah. know sometime well, between July 11th and September 1st. <laughs> that's right. We'll figure out if we need to, you know, enlist or somehow get like a uh, a Fulton County uh, stand up booth to interview the man and woman on the street as these things are announced. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I I personally wouldn't want to be down there during that yeah, time but that's yeah, a little a little sporty maybe <laughs> <laughs> you, you feeling lucky <laughs> all right we uh, i want to ask you a little bit about something we discussed in the bonus episode for for patrons at the at the two dollar level we do bonus episodes on the weekend for you full episode and we talked a little bit about um jack tashira and some some news that's come out in that case so he's this is the guy who was arrested for leaking the classified information but we do have to take a really quick break, uh, but we will discuss all that on the other side. So stay with us. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. So we had some news in the Tashera case uh, and the investigation there. We know he was arrested um, and arraigned, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. And we're going to talk a little bit about a motion for pretrial detention uh, that we set up talking about, you know, on our last show last week. Uh, but we also learned that 
the material that he distributed went to a larger audience and went out much earlier than we had already thought. And Pete, you had brought this up. Like, how did we're going to see so much more of this? How, you know, how did we not know about this sooner? And, you know, the those kinds of questions. And now now that we've learned that it happened eight months before previously known, kind of blows my mind and, and sort of expands that question of how did we not find out until a couple months later? Well, now it's like 10 months later. Uh, this all goes back to right after the invasion uh, of Ukraine. And the information was sent to other places besides that discord chat room of 50 people to upwards of like 600 people. So talk a little bit about the significance of it being, having gone on eight months earlier than we knew. Yeah. So it's really interesting because I think you have, again, what you're seeing is information coming out from the New York Times in particular, and somebody who is, he's Eric Toller, who's writing for the New York Times, but came out of Bellingcat and is an open source sort of, uh, uh, internet presence who does a lot of tremendous good work, particularly regarding Russia and the former Soviet states in Ukraine. But they found that there was evidence that Teixeira, and it looks very much like it was Teixeira shortly after the invasion. So going back to early last year, was posting on a separate uh, chat room, not the Discord channel, the, you know, the Thug Shaker um, server that everybody is, or most everybody's heard about, but that it predated that by many, many months. And not only predated it, as you said, but also had a much larger audience. There's some indication that the Discord server had maybe 40 to 60 people, but this earlier channel or chat room or whatever it was included up to hundreds of folks. So what we don't know is, is the government ahead of this, ahead of the New York Times? Do they know about this already? Is it the kind of thing where they're both racing with each other? But why it matters is it's certainly when you're trying to understand the impact, potential impact on national security, when you're trying to figure out what uh, Tashira knew, what his motives were. Certainly some of the things, there was a detention hearing last week uh, where two things happened. One, before the hearing on the 27th of April, both the government as well as the defense filed uh, supplemental motions arguing for detention in the case of the government or against it in the case of Tashira and his attorneys. But the government went into a great deal, you know, we talked about in the last podcast that, you know, if there's more information coming, if the government was going to argue to detain Tashira prior to trial, that you would we would expect to see more information in this detention hearing. And boy, did we ever. I mean, the government goes into great detail about the fact that, you know, when he was in high school, that he was suspended because of threats that he had made uh, about Molotov cocktails and other weapons. And that, in fact, when he was in high school, after he had been suspended for these threats, he went to his local police department asking for a firearms identification card. In Massachusetts, uh, you know, they're very forward-leaning in terms of red flag laws and, and, and weapons licensing. And you have to have what the state calls and issues a firearms identification card. And you need that before you can go buy a firearm. And he applied for it, and the local police department turned him down. Said, "No, buddy, you were just suspended for making these threats. You know, last year, within the past year, we're not going to give it to you." In the interim, Tashira then goes, applies to the Air Force, gets into the Air Force, goes and gets a clearance, and then comes back to the local police department saying, "Hey, look, I'm in the Air Force now. I've cleaned up my act. I've got a clearance. Give me a firearms identification card." And he eventually gets it, and then goes and. Uh, procures multiple guns, a uh, high-capacity AK-style weapon. And, you know, the in addition to all this sort of 
procurement of weapons. Another reason that's important is when you look at, in particular, the Discord channel, he engaged in a lot of discussion about violence, about murder, and certainly some things that were, you know, certainly racially charged in in in, um, in nature. So separate and distinct from any sort of disclosure of classified information, and we can talk about that in a little bit, the reality is you have a kid who is making threats at his high school who is suspended because of some of these violent threats, who tried to get a firearm and was blocked from getting a firearm because of that suspension, and then nevertheless went ahead and eventually got uh, approval to buy a firearm and continued making these sort of very violent threats and saying things. And these aren't just like, oh, I want to get people. I mean, it's like if he said, if I had my way, I would kill a fuck ton of people because it would, you know, and then going on a little bit and saying it would be culling the weak-minded. And he went on and, you know, that was in November 22. In February 2023, he told a user that he was tempted to make a specific type of minivan into what he called an assassination van. The oh, same yeah. month- This blew my mind, the assassination vehicle part of this thing. Yeah. And, and he's getting into real granular detail. It isn't just like, oh, you know, we were shooting the shit and it's hyperbole amongst a bunch of gamers. He continues saying, look, a different user, and this is all from the government's uh, filings, he sought advice from another user about what type of rifle would be easy to operate from the back of an SUV. He describes how he would conduct the shooting in a, quote, crowded urban or suburban environment. And then the next month, he described SUVs and crossovers as, quote, mobile gun trucks and, quote, off-road and good assassination vehicles. So, again, setting aside all the classified information disclosure, what I see here, what I think one sees here is very much somebody who is, you know, a troubled youth who was fairly easily able to obtain access to semi-automatic weapons. You know, an AK-style weapon is similar to an AR-15. It's a Russian version of a of an M16 or an AR-15. It takes high-capacity magazines. It's a semi-automatic weapon. Essentially, it will fire around as fast as you can pull the trigger. And that somebody was able to get a weapon and weapons like this, all while saying and making statements like this is, you know, two, three months ago, is really, really concerning. Yeah, and and we didn't really have any window into that because when we were discussing it, we'd be like, well, if he just took this classified stuff, depending on who he distributed it to, and what his intent was, you know, they we don't know if they'll have to, you know, if they'll want to hold him pre-trial. And you know, you talked about this last week on the show. You're like, if to hold him in pre-trial detention, he has to be the threat to the either a threat to the public or a flight risk. And now we've uncovered this massive threat to the public part <laughs> that we didn't previously know about. Uh, but that also raises other questions like, how did he get a clearance? And apparently that's being looked into. The Air Force said Wednesday, this is from uh, Eleanor Watson at, um, at CBS News, the Air Force said Wednesday it's temporarily suspended two leaders of that unit where Jack Teixeira worked, the commander of the 102nd Intelligence Support Squadron and the detachment commander overseeing administrative support have both been temporarily suspended from their leadership position and have uh, positions and have temporarily lost access to classified systems and information. The commander of the 102nd Intelligence Wing at OTIS, that's the National Air Guard, the Air National Guard base there in Massachusetts, uh, made the suspensions last week. Teixeira, as we know, um, he was at that post in the 102nd Intelligence Wing. 
Uh, the two commanders are suspended pending a further investigation, Pete, by the Air Force Inspector General. And as more information becomes available, more members of Teixeira's unit could face suspension uh, or removal. So the, the IG is now looking into this. Uh, and they didn't really specify whether they're just looking into how the clearances were handled or if they, you know, there's just, you know, how they do these broad level investigations. They're just looking for whatever and anything that they can find just to, to explain what happened and how it happened and how to prevent it from happening again. Right. And there is a broader effort going on. Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, ordered a, a review in a fairly short time frame, 30 to 60 days, to sort of like not look at this instance incident in particular, but also look broadly at what's going on. And so that will, I, th I think, certainly envision how it came to be that somebody like Teixeira, who was suspended from school for acts of threats of violence, rather, was nonetheless within two or three years able to apply for and get a top secret security clearance. I mean, I have no idea what the hell the, the, the background investigators were doing. That is, I mean, there you can, you know, Background investigations can be sloppy. People can drop the ball, but there are some fundamental bread and butter things that are, you know, you go to the local police department, you go to a kid's high school and you say, do you have any records? And I, for the life of me, don't understand how this came, didn't come up. Now, there's some question about, okay, did they only go back to when he was 18? And if he made these threats when he was 16, I still don't understand how a police check wouldn't uh, show this in the context of that background investigation. Now, if you step back and go up to like the 35,000 foot level of where the Secretary of Defense sits, he's got to be, or I certainly hope he is, but I imagine he's very concerned about one, yeah, look at what Teixeira did, but how many other Teixeiras are out there, right? I mean, yeah. how many other 21-year-olds who had a shoddy background investigation who may have been radicalized, who may be online engaging in, you know, racially charged discussion in the context of violence or firearms. How big is this problem? And how do we get our arms around it? Because this is a glaring example of how the system didn't work at all. And there's one, you know, and to pivot from a little bit from the the physical threats of violence, you mentioned the, you know, the the standard for pre-child detention being a threat to the community. One is certainly the threat of violence that we've talked about. But the government Another aspect of that is the threat through potential future disclosure of additional classified information because that would harm the national security. That would threaten the broad community of the United States. And the government, in fact, argues that. They argue both of those in the pre-child detention. They say, look, he had weapons. He's made all these you know, threats up to you know, a few months ago. And he has potentially additional classified information. He's attempted to obstruct our investigation by destroying his uh, Xbox, by destroying his tablet, by destroying a laptop. And he may have additional information that he that is classified that he could still disclose and still harm the community. And so they lay all that out. And what's particularly concerning is there's some indication that as in the filings, as he was shutting down sort of his discussion and sharing classified information, he tells everybody, hey, look, I'm going to stop doing this. But if you have specific questions, DM me. And in particular, he says, if you have specific questions about your country, feel free to DM me. Well, you know, he's not talking about the United States. If you're saying the United States, you say our country. If he's saying your country, that's a third, you know, that's a, that's a country other than the United States. And why that's important is what he's charged with right now is title, Section 793 of Title 18. The espionage statute has a range of 
uh, uh, violations of which 793 is kind of the lighter version where you can't show a foreign power. 794, section 794 of Title 18 is the full-fledged espionage where there is a foreign power, where you are providing information to a foreign power or foreign trying to, and you know that's either going to help that foreign power or hurt the United States. And why that's important is one, obviously there's a lot more potential harm. It's one thing if he's trying to show off to a bunch of 16-year-olds spread out around the United States, it's bad, but it's not nearly as bad as if there is a Ukrainian or a Russian posing as a Ukrainian, or God knows who else in this Discord channel, that Teixeira is fielding requests for classified information and sending it to them. Because that, particularly in wartime, has a real potential damage to the US. And how that impacts Teixeira, the cap on the charges that he's facing right now are 10 years for each count. But when you go to 794, when you have the involvement of foreign power, that all of a sudden kicks the, the violation up to potentially life in prison, or even execution, a capital offense, if the information you disclose leads to the killing of a, of a human source. So, you know, I don't think there's any indication that that was triggered, but certainly in terms of Teixeira's potential legal exposure and what he might be looking at jail term wise, if they can show any sort of foreign contact and back and forth or even, dis, you know, let alone disclosures, his exposure just went way, way, way up. Yeah, and and I mean, who knows uh, wh <laughs> whether it'll reach that uh, capital punishment uh, thing or not? I mean, because I didn't have any idea about the assassination vehicles and <laughs> the Molotov cocktails, so there's just going to be a lot more, I think, that comes out uh, from this investigation as time goes on. But yeah, I'm also more interested in the cleanup, um, how we fix this uh, going forward, um, and we're going to keep keep on that because you know in 2017 i think the ndaa wanted to move background checks from the office of personnel management over to the dod and then the, by executive order in 2019 then president trump ordered that move uh and and it was the background checks were moved from the office of personnel management where they'd been forever over to the department of defense now the the main infrastructure and the contracting of, uh, that you know did the actual work didn't change much it was just who who had the oversight there who who became the you know the the papa agency for uh, for that but i don't necessarily think the answer is to move it back to opm i think there needs to be some sort of a real deep dive uh by dod ig and an overhaul of of this of the background check uh we've got 700,000 people in in the queue i mean it's it's like it really needs uh long overdue uh for some cleanup uh, and i know that we're definitely going to keep an eye on that what comes out of the sec defs uh, commission on you know to uh, come up with ideas. I personally think you should it should be its own agency under the office of the director of national intelligence. Um that's just where I would put it uh and give it its own agency um but not you know not cabinet level or anything. Uh but be under the ODNI. That's what I would do since that's who gets you know who does most of the background checks or are people in the intelligence community. So that's something that definitely needs to be investigated and fixed. 
Yeah. And as they're doing it, you know, it's also throwing a spotlight on, I think, the real problem of radicalization within, I mean, across the government, but particularly within the Department of Defense. And, you know, depending on who you listen to within DOD, they're saying, look, we don't we don't have a radicalization problem, which I think is is very much people who say that about any government agency, I think, are putting their head in the sand a little bit. I mean, the reality is, they do. you know, the the many of these filings talk about, you know, that he made to share made racial threats. I think the extent of the most granular detail we've seen is that, you know, they uncovered some video I think he'd posted on the Discord server where he had made both anti-Semitic and other racial comments before turning around and shooting a gun at some firing range. So you've certainly got anti-Semitism. They don't further identify what the racial threats are. But the reality is, I mean, look, DOD, like every government agency, is made up of United States citizens across the spectrum. And in particular, when you look at DOD, the you know vast majority of the junior enlisted ranks are folks coming out of high school, not exclusively, but largely you get high school grads from across America and not usually, you know, what they aren't typically are well-educated, you know, upper middle class kids graduating college who decide after graduating college, they're going to enlist and become a private in the army or the Marine Corps. Typically, these are folks graduating from high school, again, all across America, entering the armed services. And they represent, just as there are a wide variety of, you know, sort of perspectives and biases across the American population, military is made up of that. So I think it will be interesting to see Again, going back to the context of what background investigations are finding or not finding, if you peel back and do a little bit better job, how much are you going to see, you know, oh, we found, you know, two accounts for this applicant or this private on 4chan and it turns out they're a violent, raging racist who, you know, is is are making all kinds of horrible anti-Semitic or anti-black or whatever, whatever hateful group, you know, that suddenly those things become apparent. And um, come I on, I made a podcast and I got kicked out of the government. Come on. Yeah, yeah clearly. Well, right. But I mean, <laughs> yes, it was offensive it was solely because of your one target of saying this is not a very uh, yeah, reasonable I guess it democratic was individual. Trump, it's like, right. Yeah. You know, if you wanted to talk about the, uh, you know, LGTBQ or, you know, just anything about, you know, the trans grooming going on, that would probably have flown just fine had you had that as your topic. But by God, you take on Trump and you got to get your ass thrown out. <laughs> yeah. That is, uh, yeah, I have some personal experience with that, but you can't find this guy posting videos uh, making anti-Semitic remarks a, a, a target practice. Okay, yeah, that needs that just needs a second look in my. In my yeah, for sure. I mean, look, the clearance, the clearance process is broken. It is not. It will. It should catch the most glaring, blatant, horrible things. But the reality is, it it is not done super well. There are all kinds of holes. It's in radical need of reform. This is not a. This is. I. I'm certain this is not a like standalone one-off issue, Jack Teixeira, you know, is is the one and only problem out there. I think this is indicative of a very large problem. I think anybody who has worked on security clearance issues, whether they're conducting them, whether they're doing investigations about how and why they did or didn't work, it is is full of knowledge 
about the fact that the process is not nearly as good as it could be. And to fix it, frankly, is going to take money. It's going to take attention and money. And both of those, you know, in a governmental setting can be tough. But I think, you know, to share is showing us why we've got to spend that time and money because the the cost of failure is just too great. Yeah. And it's not just the the background check and the clearance stuff. It's the entrance into the military, those exams, those psych evals that the, how did this get missed there and the recruitment and how we do that. Yeah. It just all needs to be looked at. And and I'm hoping that this will uh, trigger that and we'll we'll cover it here on the show uh, as it unfolds, not only the case, but what we're going to do to fix it, uh, fix the problem. So we're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back. We have a lawsuit to talk about um, and some more E. Jean Carroll testimony today. Uh, So stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch you will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, Pete, I want to bring some attention to a lawsuit that flew under the radar this week. It was filed by the Department of Justice. And as I'm reading this, I just I'm going to read some excerpts for you. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But I, I want everybody to think about what it would be like if we didn't elect Biden, <laughs> uh, because I oftentimes wonder, Pete, what if we still had Bill Barr or Bill Barr had resigned? So what if we had somebody inevitably worse, right? Eastman, Jeffrey Clark, Sidney Powell uh, as attorney general, yeah. Rudy Giuliani, like just 
I want everybody to just kind of reflect about what an incredible job we did to make sure that the election went the right way and how important that is for so many people. So this is, uh, I'll just read here the excerpt. The Justice Department today filed a complaint challenging Tennessee State Bill 1, SB 1, a recently enacted law, this is enacted, that denies necessary medical care to youth based solely on who they are. The complaint alleges that SB1's ban on providing certain medically necessary care to transgender minors violates the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. The department is also asking the court to issue an immediate order to prevent the law from going into effect July 1st of this year. SB1, this law in Tennessee, makes it unlawful to provide or offer to provide certain types of medical care for transgender minors with diagnosed gender dysphoria. SB1's blanket ban prohibits potential treatment options that have been recommended by major medical associations for consideration in limited circumstances in accordance with established and comprehensive guidelines and standards of care. By denying only transgender youth access to these forms of medically necessary care while allowing non-transgender minors to access the same or similar procedures, SB1 discriminates against transgender youth. The department's complaint alleges that SB1 violates the Equal Protection Clause by discriminating on the basis of both sex and transgender status. Doctors, parents, and anyone else who provides or offers to provide the prohibited care faces the possibility of civil suits for 30 years and other sanctions. So... This is a very important lawsuit uh, against a a pretty cut and dry example of a violation of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause to me in my eyes. Yeah. And the point you started with is absolutely the critical point here. I mean, elections have consequences. This is – it is – there's nothing mandating DOJ to file this lawsuit. There is nothing mandating that DOJ engage in any way, shape or form with the Mifepristone litigation. They are engaging great, absolutely as they should, to protect the right to the various forms of healthcare that they wouldn't, quite frankly, would the second Trump administration be here with us today. So it absolutely, I think, is the case that we this good work, this necessary work, is sadly enough quite voluntary in nature when it comes to, you know, sort of the discretion of DOJ. And it's always like, you know, people talk about like, well, the guardrails of the Department of Justice and the, you know, the guardrails of the institution. Don't overvalue those guardrails because the reality of the matter is things like this lawsuit, um, going against SB1 are not a given. They're there because you've got President Biden in the White House. That is there because you've got Merrick Garland as the attorney general. In a different scenario, under a different administration, you might not have seen, you likely wouldn't have seen this uh, complaint at all. So again, it is in the category of things probably people take for granted. Don't, Don't be fooled for a second that under a different administration, we wouldn't be talking about this at all. We'd be talking about the ever, you know, sort of the cascading implementation of various state laws that are just wiping out, you know, access to all kinds of access to healthcare across the board to any sort of minority groups that are, you know, out of favor with the Republican majority. So I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I'm, I'm glad they're doing it. And, you know, we'll see, we'll see how it goes. But usually, you know, DOJ is going to bring a very well reasoned, very well-researched set of legal briefs to the matter, and we'll, we'll see how it plays out in court. 
yeah, we'll let you know if there's going to be a, a stay granted. They've asked for that emergency stay, you know, um, pending this litigation, which is exactly what happened in the Mifeprestone suit. If it weren't for us electing Joe Biden and this attorney general deciding to ask for a stay, um, you know, pending appeal on on that, we we would none of us would have we might not have access to to Mifeprestone, um, and so. Just something to to think about when we talk about cleanup on aisle 45. This is the kind of stuff uh, we mean that we are able to now have a Department of Justice that takes these discretionary steps to help protect uh, to protect our rights. So we will uh, keep you informed as to how that filing um, plays out. So also today in court, Pete, more cross examination of E. Jean Carroll by Takapina. But before the day even started, we got a letter, which turned into a motion um, that was denied by uh, Judge Kaplan. And this was Trump's lawyer uh, trying to uh, have have Judge Kaplan declare a mistrial. Because uh, basically, they're sad that every single objection that uh, Robbie Kaplan, the side E. Jean's lawyers bring up, gets sustained. Uh, and um, they, you know, the judge sort of interjected when uh, talking about uh, the literary reference that, you know, E. Jean made and having to explain the joke to, to Joey Taco Pants and how it's just been very unfair. Uh, but, you know, make no mistake, this... This was a motion, well, first of all, to get these issues, what they see as issues, on the record in case they lose and they want to appeal, and then they've got it a, a record. But this was a this was basically a press release in hopes that a juror who's not supposed to read this stuff maybe reads it and maybe has a little sympathy for for poor poor you know Joey Taco Pants. Yeah, you know, and I think it is again at the end of the day whether it's wise or not. I don't know that it ultimately is going to hurt. Trump and his legal position in this lawsuit. I mean, the judge has already, you know, has seen through a lot of the nonsense of what Takapina is doing and has, you know, sort of uh, counseled him uh, in the courtroom outside the presence of the jury and certainly in some of the objections that have been raised and sustained that, you know, some of the behavior is is inappropriate, including when he warned uh, Takapino to, you best get a hold of your client and put a lid on some of these sort of outrageous statements that Trump and young Eric were putting out on social media, that, which might be construed as threatening, uh, you know, members of the, of the process. But so I don't know that this is going to make the judge's opinion worse, but it's certainly, I agree with you. I mean, this is, this is gay, this is targeted at one, you know, potentially could a juror read it, but certainly Donald Trump is going to read it as he's, I guess, off in Scotland and, you know, furthering his little, you know, alleged money laundering, uh, you know, golf course over there that never seems to turn <laughs> Do we a have an extradition treaty with Scotland? <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know. Scotland and Ireland is he, he's, he's like, uh, yeah, you know, fleeing the back in the 1700s, going to flee to France or something on a boat in the middle of the night. I don't know. But so, you know, it will clearly make Trump happy and I'm certain Trump will truth about it or, you know, talk about it somehow. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's not going to go anywhere. The judge already turned it down. The judge will almost certainly, when he's giving jury instructions, when the case is concluded, before it goes to the jury, it's almost standard that the judge will include an instruction to the jury that, look, if I said anything or presented the appearance that would seem to favor one side or the other, that was not my intention and disregard anything if you thought I was. So, you know, this this is not going to get anywhere. It certainly does put 
put it on the record if they decide to appeal. They've made a record of it and, you know, would presumably reference that in the course of any appeal. But it just, you know, this whole thing, you know, I, I can't, I cannot admire enough the strength of E. Jean Carroll to be on the stand and all the just, you know, days now of just aggressive cross-examination of what she did and didn't do and expected behavior in the face of sexual assault and rape and why she did one thing and why she didn't do another thing and why she said one thing. I mean, it is, this, this is gut-wrenching testimony and a extraordinary example of why so many rapes are unreported because who the fuck wants to go through what she's going through on the stand? And so, yeah. uh, you know, it's gross. It's horrible. I get, you know, all sides are entitled to good, effective advocacy, but I, I just, I would never, I, I could never be a defense attorney defending, you know, somebody who who seems very compellingly accused of sexual assault. I, I, I just don't know how somebody like that gets up and, you know, how you look yourself in the mirror doing things like this. Well, and I think it's it's been very interesting to, I mean, why have Joey Takapina do this cross? Why not have a woman, Alina exactly. um, Haba, do this cross? You know, I'm I'm not sitting here thinking of ways I could better defend Donald Trump, but they really didn't do the best. They're not putting their best foot forward here. First of all, he's not showing up in court. That can have a negative inference drawn there. And second of all, it's just this attack dog. Um, and today was mostly like, yeah, but you've been happy and, you know, Look, here's an email. There was an email from Kathy Griffin about a watch party uh, with some friends. By the way, I went to that watch party. It was it was very fun. Uh, so you you clearly your life isn't miserable. You've been having fun sometimes. Uh, or there was an email that was brought in um, from somebody who had written into her advice column, I guess, and had talked about. Uh, telling a story about or having a rape fantasy inside a Bergdorf Goodman uh, department store as if to suggest that E. Jean got her quote-unquote story from this particular email as opposed to what actually happened in, in real life. Um, I also thought it was very interesting, an interesting choice to have Mr. Ferreira do the direct examination of, of E. Jean, have a man do it instead of Roberta Kaplan. I thought that that was a very wise choice, and I'm sure that that was planned out in advance, and there was a lot of strategy involved in, in that decision as well. But today, mostly outside of that filing, outside of that motion that was denied by the judge for a mistrial, it was all just like, your life seems great, and you love status, and you like to be famous, and you like to tell stories to get people's attention, and um, and maybe you just made this up because you read it in one of it in, in an email from a from a somebody writing in to to talk to you, et cetera. That that's the kind of attack that that Takapina went on. That was that's that's his, I guess that's his strategy. And I don't think it's a very I don't think it's a very good one. No, I don't either. But that's Trump's strategy, right? I mean, he he wields the law to both protect himself as a, and as a way to extract vengeance. I mean, it is, you know, you dare cross me and call, try and hold me to account. I'm going to do everything in my power to publicly tear you down, humiliate you, just try and destroy you in anything you might do in trying to hold me accountable for my actions, in trying to hold me accountable allegedly for uh, sexual assault and rape. 
and and so in Trump's history again, you know, he uses the law this way. It is both a shield where he tries and uh, to avoid any sort of accountability for alleged illegal actions, but he also affirmatively uses it to go after critics, to go That's after people. Yeah. You know, right. And and this is just, you know, this is a particularly gross horrible example of it. I mean, it's one thing if it's, you know, somebody who, you know, got into a bad business deal and is trying to get money out of them or he's trying to get money back or legal fees or whatever, but you know, in this case, when the accusation goes to rape, it, it it's it's his mo, and you see him using. You know, you and I might look there and say, like, you know, why would you, you know, and if anybody, if you've seen Joe Tacopina, he's not his personality is not somebody that I would think if I were cross examining a female victim of rape, he would not be my first choice either. But that may not be the point. the The point may not be, you know, persuade the jury. The point may be tear this woman apart. Call me crazy, but usually my point is to win. Yeah, but but what's winning for Trump? What's winning for Trump? I mean, winning for Trump in a way is, yeah, winning in this trial and whatever monetary damages may or may not come. But winning for Trump is also any other person out there who he has raped or sexually assaulted or even done any non, you know, just like, oh, chilling. if you come yeah. after me, I won't fuck you as hard as I'm fucking E. Jean Carroll right now on the stand. Put the chilling effect on other people. And so let this be a message to all of you. Mm. If you want to cross me, this is what you have in store. So separate and distinct from whatever comes out of this particular trial, it's part of this broad, and it's worked for him, his whole career. That was the Roy Cohn lesson, Right. Right. You're you're doing it for the individual, but you're also laying down a marker for every other person out there. If you dare cross me, this is what's in store for you. Whether you're a federal government agency, whether you're a woman I allegedly raped, whether you are a creditor, whoever it is, you cross me and I'm coming for you. And God bless Eugene Carroll for having the nerve and the courage to say, I don't care. I'm going to do it. It's the right thing to do. Yeah, truly a truly a warrior, definitely a survivor. So thanks, Eugene. Sending all the positive vibes your way. Also, the jury has the Proud Boy Seditious Conspiracy case. And um, they've had a couple of jury notes. I know that they've asked to see a couple of pieces of video evidence again. Um, they've also sent a note saying one piece of video evidence isn't here in our portal. We'd like to see that. They've asked to see the riot shield Pozzola stole and used to break the window open. They have uh, asked for a stapler. A stapler, yeah. <laughs> uh, which I appreciate. I like staplers. Uh, and then they gave a note today on Monday, I should say. We're, we're recording this on Monday. That said, these seven jurors have these appointments in the next seven days, which indicates to me they don't, <laughs> they are not wrapping up anytime soon on their deliberations. So they're very, taking their job very seriously. These are, this is a very, very big trial. This is seditious conspiracy. This is the Proud Boys. These are the tip of the spear guys. We've already got some seditious conspiracy charges and convictions uh, for some Oath Keepers, uh, two groups of Oath Keepers that went to trial. This is the Proud Boys trial. And um, the seditious conspiracy is on the table. So uh, it's we could see this jury deliberation go on for probably maybe the rest of this week at least. So I just wanted to give everybody that update. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, look, this is a three-month trial, right? With with multiple defendants in a very complex set of uh, alleged violations and actions. And so for the jury to to do justice to their work, they're going to need some time. And I think, you know, I'm not discouraged at all by them, you know, sort of laying out that like, this is what our schedules look like over the next week. I do think it means that they're taking it 
certainly seriously as they should, and the justice system is working. And I think you know we'll we'll talk about it next week. I think at length because it, like this is really important, Allison, for two reasons. One, the seditious conspiracy, the crimes that are on the table, are really critical in terms of whether or not DOJ is successful in applying them. But then separate and distinct from whatever crimes were charged, the fact of the matter is the Proud Boy leadership, when you look at their anticipation and knowledge of the violence that was going to occur on January 6th before it occurred, this is the critical link of taking what happened on the ground at the Capitol and moving that up the chain and into the awareness of the people around Trump and to Trump himself. So this is, I think, you know, we've talked about it and then we'll talk about it some more, but I, I'm, I'm kind of surprised, frankly, a lot of the mainstream media, both on, on television and print, they're covering it. But in my opinion, I don't know that a lot of folks really understand the enormous gravity of this particular case, far more than the Oath Keepers, that this is a really critical set of... Uh, of charges that the jury's deliberating with now. And, you know, I don't think my guess, I would be surprised if we get a verdict this week. We might. I certainly think it'll be towards the end. But, you know, next week, who knows? We'll be, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have much more to talk about uh, next week. Yeah, we definitely will. And, um, you know, as the, there between July 11th and September 1st down in Georgia, we're going to have some uh, news coming out long, up there. Long, hot summer, Allison. Long, hot summer. And I got to tell you what. I think there's plenty of time between now and July 11th for the Department of Justice to release some charges for documents cases against the former president. I don't know. I This is, seems like there's enough time in there. We got two full months, May and June, and ha almost half of July. Uh, so hmm. the question, the question is, do you have... One of the things, do you, if you're Jack Smith, and I know you, you know, you and Andy have a whole podcast talking just about this, so check that out. If you are Jack Smith, do you wait and issue all the charges at once or do you issue separate indictments, one for the documents case and another then for any sort of January 6th activity? In my opinion, and the reason I think he waits is that as soon as you charge something, typically that that sets in things, it stops things and it sets other things in motion. So typically once you charge... You don't continue running a grand jury to continue gathering evidence about those things which you've charged. And then you start incurring all kinds of discovery deadlines where you have to turn things over. The problem with these two sets of these two buckets are that you have things, witnesses that relate to both. You have witnesses that have information both about January 6th as well as potentially about the classified documents. And so if you start incurring, you know, either blocks to further investigative activity or needing to turn things over for folks that have relevant information about stuff you haven't charged, it starts getting complex. And I'm not saying he couldn't do it, but in my mind that argues to wait and kind of do everything all at once. But that's, you know, none of us know, right? I mean, we're all on the outside looking in. Well, I mean, he's got Pence's testimony. True. I don't. I'm, I'm thinking, yeah. And <laughs> I, I mean, think there's the, only a handful of the Ocha Nostra left. Um, that's what we called. Uh, it was a group of eight people, uh, Cuccinelli, Nick Luna, Meadows, that whole group of people. Um, and he's Cassidy he's Hutchinson to, and all the he's like talked the, to a few of them, but uh, not necessarily all of them. But of course, they might have gone in and come out and we missed it. Uh, but I walked by the Prettyman Courthouse today. There are people camped out watching who goes in and out of that courthouse <laughs> and who goes in and out of that grand jury. 
Uh, but two and a half months is a long time. Um, I, you know, I've been saying for a, a year and a half now that I imagine charges for January sixth would come down uh, if they. Ca- well, I said if they if they came down in April of twenty twenty three, that would be fast. Is I believe the way that I put it. Um, and so now we're, you know, we're just past that now, uh, we're headed into the summer, uh, and a lot of folks have said in public reporting that it looks like he might be wrapping up by, by the summer, uh, Jack Smith, we'll see. Uh, but now it's just with this delay of the Fonnie Willis, um, investigation. And to be fair, it's a, uh, a necessary it's a very necessary delay to sort this out with Debro and the lawyers and get immunity deals to the right people and get that further testimony uh before you present your case uh, to to the regular grand jury for indictment so that just puts a whole another little spin on on the on the i guess the the timeline for for these indictments so we'll see how it all shakes out yeah, absolutely. Again, nothing, no shortage of things to talk about uh, through the summer here coming up. So yeah, next definitely. week, hopefully some movement on the Proud Boys. We'll see. Yep. We'll, we'll report it then. Everybody, until next week, I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Peach Truck. We'll see you next time. Cleanup on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch you will be vaporized. 
Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.